Sometimes it is fun in games. Today on Globally Speaking, we are talking with an expert about gaming localization. How do decisions get made? What do gamers look for in partners for localization? And some real insight into that part of the industry. Welcome to Globally Speaking, your program that explores everything and anything to do with language localization. Are you ready to dive into the most critical issues impacting global brands today? Globally Speaking is designed to educate, inform, and challenge everyone who's engaged in global communications. Your hosts for Globally Speaking are Renato Beninato and Michael Stevens. Learn more by visiting our website at www.globallyspeakingradio.com. And now, here are Renato and Michael. I'm Renato Beninato. And I'm Michael Stevens. And today on Globally Speaking, we're talking about games. Yes, and big people games. Big people games, a little bit about kid games. Do you play any games, Renato? You know, I'm not. I'm the father of a gamer. Okay. But I'm your typical old guy. I play words with friends. I play solitaire. I don't have much patience for... I skipped that generation. I think I stopped at Frogger back at Fro- Atari. <laughs> Atari. Well, today it's a really insightful conversation about games, about localization, and I really think you'll enjoy it. So let our guest introduce himself. Hi, I'm Andy Johnson. I've been working in video games and web since 1991. I have more gray hairs than I'd like to admit. I'm an avid gamer and I love playing games and I like to take that passion and try to convert that into localized content for non-English players. So... What I've done in the past with localization on the data side, it's very interesting to look at the number of players that come in from any given country and also the language that, they, that they're using. Before, when you try and justify a localization budget, it was pretty much what, what languages are we going to do? And everyone shot from the hip and just said e-figs because that was the norm. Everyone did e-figs. But now we can, with the data that comes in, you can analyze that data, look at it, and really see where players are coming in from, both country and language, and you can see their behavior. And the great thing about that is, on a game called Battle Nations, I looked at the data that was coming in and saw that players playing in Russian really liked the game. There was a larger-than-normal number and they were all playing in English. So what, what I could do from that was look at the, um, start burrowing down into the cost of how much, you know, the word count, the asset count for the actual game, how much it would cost to load, how much it would cost to load QA, and then really build a business case around that. Look at how long, if the player base increased by X number, X, X percent, then how much would that increase the revenue? And then I did that for three or four different options, possibilities, something like 25%, 50%, 100%, and then crazy if it doubled or or quadrupled. And then picked one of those and just said, we think that this is the most likely 
given experience, most likely growth pattern for players, if we localize to Russian, um, presented a business case and said, we think it's going to be profitable within X number of months. Mm-hmm. Um, was it? According to the data scientist who ran the numbers, it was spot on. That's great. It was profitable within three months. And after that point, it was paying for itself with updates that went in. And the, the, so there's two fascinating things about this for me. So Battle Nations is a free-to-play game. So by the time we localized it, and this was through a company called Z2, which was later acquired by King, which was then acquired by Activision. <laughs> it's crazy. So the fascinating thing is that when we localized, at the point when we localized Battle Nations, the game content, it was very verbose. It was lots of text. It was very, very comedy-driven, very humor, very tricky to localize. By the time we localized it, the word count was higher than the book The Hobbit. <laughs> wow. This was not a small feat. It wasn't a words with friends or a candy crush. This was kind of an epic console-sized game that had already had a two-year lifespan, I think, at that point, and all the content updates and unit updates had a massive community following. And we, I managed to build a business case around that and still showed it would be profitable by looking at the data. That was purely looking at data. Is it normal for a game that is two years away from launch to be able to recoup revenue like that? No, this was two years after launch. Yeah. We are in a new place in games. Yeah. So we used to be in a place on console before free-to-play, before always-on-devices, where games were fire and forget, where you would have this massive spike at the end of the development cycle where everything came in and was crammed in together and localization somehow was done at the same time when all the content was changing and being polished in the last probably really three months is when you do the real localization on like a two-year console game. Mm -hmm. But realistically, all the real work is done in like the last month and a half. And then you would submit it and the game would go in and then it would go to DADC or wherever they do the disc manufacturing. It would be released. You'd see it in the stores and that would be it. And then you're on to the next one. But now with mobile and always on, always connected gaming devices, the ecosystem has kind of changed where we're not looking, companies are not looking at releasing a game and then following up with the game and trying to keep I don't like to use the word users, I use the word players, keep mm-hmm. players in their games. So a player would, would go from, take EA as an example, from one EA game in the old style to the next EA game to the next EA game. So they would chew through content through the game. It could be an eight or ten hour game. And then by the time they'd finished that, there would be another release that hopefully would capture them when they have that money in their pocket to purchase the next game. So now we're in a very different place where we are in a much more software as a service yeah. with you have your initial release and then you have incremental updates. And those incremental updates go on as long as the product, the game is sticking with players and they like it. Yeah. And then they can continue to even develop in that same game. You know, I, I yes. think of something like Destiny that has, that rolls out different adventures yeah. on a regular basis and so people never need to leave 
yeah. <laughs> ever. Why play anything else? Even small mobile games are a lot more like the MMO model where World of Warcraft has been out over 10 years. Right. Wow. So that model is now in things as small as a mobile game that you get where you're playing and then there'll be a new content update or there'll be a holiday pack or there'll be some new skins that come through and localization has to, it has much smaller, tighter cycles and loops to constant release. So it's gone from this project management style of we do this as much prep work as we can and we have this crazy busy period and then done to now we do as much prep work as we can. We have this crazy busy period, try and release the best quality that we can and then incrementally update. And then as content updates come out, localize and release those. <laughs> so I want to go back. I, I'm fascinated by this concept of using data to drive decisions. And you were still building business cases to define what languages you were going to do and what you were going to do. What other parameters did you take into consideration? Just usage? I remember having a conversation with a gaming company where they said that they realized that any game that they released, they would have 20 million users in Indonesia overnight. Yeah. But they would get 10,000 in Norway, and they would get a lot more revenue from Norway yep. than they would get from Indonesia. So they localized into Norwegian and not into Indonesian. Yeah. So they'll, they'll look at the lifetime value potential of the player and they'll say, this cohort, this group of players are very valuable. Like it's a Facebook group that on a certain day, they're in this certain Facebook group in, they're worth $10. The cost to acquire each user is $2. Therefore, you know, simple math is 10 minus 2 is they, they're going to get 8 bucks back. So they're always looking for that positive ROI, return on investment on players. Everything to do with free to play is, is ROI based or should be. But there's some companies take that too far and are, are very business and not so much game. And that's where I like to look at localization and, and preach that, evangelize that there's players at the end here and it has to be a good experience. <laughs> so that's one side of it, the quality of the player. And that's evident in places like Japan versus China. So if you look at China, China has a massive, just simply massive amount of players, but they're Average spend is significantly less than players in Japan. So where there are a lot less players that you can acquire and the cost to acquire in Japan is much greater than in China, the output of that is that Japanese players individually are going to be worth more. But then in China, you're looking at the Walmart model of you're going to get a lot more, but your returns are going to be less. But because of the size of that group of players that are going to come in, that's worth the investment. Yeah. So, so you've talked about two uses of big data that I think are applicable, whether you're in gaming or not. The first was instead of relying on just sort of the standard GDP model for markets to move in, maybe take advantage of some things that would not be the most obvious. Like, hey, one of our primary first languages should be Russian. Mm-hmm. The second one you talked about is using it to segment users and be able to create an ROI model on there. What about the creative side of games? How, how's big data being used on that? So on the creative side, what tends to happen 
is they will look at the return from how players are working through a game, how they're playing a game, and then they will adjust the game design accordingly. So in, in old-style games, it would be a designer would come up with an idea, a designer or a design team, and then they would say, this is the game we're going to make. They were the experts. But now the source of truth is how players work through the game, how players play the game, and what their interactions are. And you can look at that and see and say, well, our assumptions were not correct. Players are actually branching off and going in this direction in the game where we didn't previously think that that was something they'd be interested in. So now we can change gears and look at creating more, more content, more features around this area of the game. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, the other trend, the, the virtual reality, and how do you think that affects localization? Was that something that you had the chance to work on? I have not worked on localizing virtual reality content or augmented content or augmented reality content yet. I'm sure that time is coming, but I have worked on, I've seen development cycles and console cycles change over the years. And I worked on 2D games back on the Sega Genesis, the Mega Drive. And then when everything went to 3D, I worked on 3D. And then when everything went to online, and I worked on online. And then when it went to free-to-play. So I've worked through these, these changes in the industry. I don't feel that, other than the display and the interaction, because there's going to be, obviously, differences in the way that you, you interact with the environment and with text and, and voice and subtitling, how it's going to display, I don't think the actual content is going to change. So localizing from a content standpoint hasn't really changed over the years. The quality and the volume, the drops that come in, the volume of drops has changed. So I think that if we get to a point where we're all in the matrix or something similar, lawnmower man or something like that. And games are, or, or ready player one where players are in a game for like entire days at a time. Then the amount of content that's going to need to be in there is going to be of the size of the world of Warcraft or even larger. One of the things that I find interesting is that Japan is very advanced in gaming and game development. And from things that I track, there is a lot of interest of having Japanese games localized into English and Western languages. And it seems that there is more interest in getting that direction done than from English into Japanese, because I think that that comes standard. It's just a speculation. It's things yeah. that I notice in forums and things like that. Is there a reason for that? If you look at Twitter, that's about half the comments around translation and localization is about Japanese gaming. Yeah. So I don't know if Japanese gaming is the best because I've seen some Japanese games that would not work over here and probably don't do too well in Japan, but they have a very niche player base. I do know that there's also China and Korea, and they're all very unique markets, whereas the West is, is more or less, it's one market. So we can create one game for all of the West, meaning, meaning US, Europe, South America. I know that there are some companies that are taking games from China and adapting them and bringing them across. But that's more of a culturalization 
than a just a straight localization. You can't just take in in many games. You can't just take the content and then localize the content and then bring it across. You have to look at the game holistically, and then you start getting into mini development cycles where you have to update and change assets. Something that may be acceptable in Japan because some of their what's acceptable over there may not be acceptable in the U.S. For instance, some of that content may have to be adapted and changed. So then you're looking at not just having your localizers like QA and then implementing the content and then releasing. You're looking at having developers and artists. And I know that some companies are doing that already, but the tricky thing is the finding the right game. There are a lot of people on Twitter and Reddit who love games and want this particular game brought over from Japan to the US and they really want to play it in English. But going back to Battle Nations, one of the very interesting things that I found after localizing that was we had this really passionate Russian community and we released the Russian version and this, these guys loved the game and they knew the game and they've been screaming for Russian for ages. And the unexpected output of that was after the day after we released, I came in and I had a Russian player that I've been talking to. And he said, people hate it. I'm like, why? What? <laughs> my, my entire soul dropped. I'd worked on this project and I've done this thing that the players have said that they wanted. And then the data said that it was correct. And my math said it was going to be profitable. And the first thing that this guy said was people hate it. And the problem was they had fallen in love with the characterization of the English and got used to that. And even though we, I think we did a really good job on the localization, we really took time to hone the comedy and make sure it fit. When it went across to Russian, it was so, that change was so abrasive that the players who had been playing for that period of time didn't like that switch. It was such a ripping off the band-aid, ripping off the plaster moment so that brings me into this topic of who does what. What is the difference between a good supplier of gaming localization and one that is not that good? How do you select a good partner to localize games? That's a really good question. Do you have an hour? <laughs> we do. Um, <laughs> so for me... I think it's very important to say that I don't come from a traditional localization background. I come from a development background. So I'm very process, quality, creativity. I always say my second language is development. So I talk to developers on their level. I don't necessarily talk in French to a French localizer. So I think that's very important to distinguish. So my selection process may be very different from someone who comes from a translation background. And if I put this out there, then vendors will come to me after listening to this and saying, we can do this, we can do that, exactly how you said, which would be quite amusing, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that happening now. Well, my selection process normally goes on, honestly, on something you touched on in a previous podcast, which was content. If a vendor is willing to give something away for free, some piece of information, you know, a walkthrough, a guide, they have a blog, they have something that I can look at that's substantial that I go, I can quantify and say these guys definitely know what they're talking about, or at least this piece of content looks like they know what they're talking about, then I'm much more willing to go talk to them. 
I tend to stick with vendors that I have worked with previously. Trust is a very big thing with me because when push comes to shove, you can do all the tests you want. You can have the perfect localization vendor, but when you're up against it and you need like 10,000 words localized in two days, and it needs to be creatively localized and you need it back spot on perfect, then you need to make sure that that vendor can do that work. This podcast was produced by Burns360. You can subscribe to Globally Speaking on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Globally Speaking, brought to you by Moravia. We'd like to hear your comments, suggestions, and feedback. So until next time, please visit online at www.globallyspeakingradio.com.